0: time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name's Nish Nikolic and my guest today is returning from an earlier podcast, Michael Sugru, who is here to talk about his new book, Relentless Courage. Really a book about how first responders, those dealing with trauma, can work on themselves and overcome the challenges they have to live a rich and vibrant life. An in-depth conversation with Michael today about his journey again and the way that he was able to work on his trauma with professionals and others that he trusts and the vulnerabilities that he's had to overcome in doing so. Really interesting conversation to hear from that lived experience perspective and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Michael, big thank you for coming back onto the show today.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been quite some time since we last spoke.
0: Tell me a little bit about what you've been what we've been doing since we last spoke.
1: Well, obviously, COVID happened. That was the big thing that happened uh, since we last spoke. And since that's died down, I've actually gotten more into public speaking. So I'm speaking all across the United States to different first responders and military folks on post-traumatic stress awareness, suicide prevention, Uh, Really just trying to put all my efforts into saving first responder lives and bringing down the the suicide numbers. But in addition to all of that, um, actually, I wrote a book with a clinician, a psychologist, and the book was released about 25 weeks ago. And it's doing very, very well here, Um, not just in the United States, but also Australia, uh, the UK, Germany and Canada. So it's 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 going great.
0: Fantastic. Before we, we we delve into some of the, the um, uh, focuses you have in the book, maybe you can tell our audience a little bit about your history and your background so that you know, others who haven't heard you speak yet get a little bit of a background and understanding.
1: So I'm from California. I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. And right after college, I went into the United States Air Force. And I served in what's called security forces, which is basically military police. I served all over the world. I was in Europe, South America, the Middle East. And I got out of the Air Force as a captain back in 2004. And then I went directly into civilian law enforcement back here in the San Francisco Bay Area for a city called Walnut Creek. And that's about 15 minutes outside San Francisco. Uh, When I was there, I worked a bunch of different assignments. I was a training officer. I was actually undercover on a statewide drug task force, and I was also a patrol sergeant and a public information officer. Um, Back in the end of 2012, I was just promoted as a sergeant, and I was involved in a very traumatic, critical incident, uh, basically two mornings after Christmas. And that incident really forever changed my life. It changed my path. And set me on the mission that I'm on here today.
0: I know we don't want to touch too much on that because we've got a different agenda for today, and 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 talking about some more of the preventative measures of of uh, you know supporting first responders away from mental health difficulties and suicide. But can you talk us through briefly about what happened uh, the two those two sort of mornings after Christmas?
1: Absolutely. So um, the shift started actually the day after Christmas. I worked the graveyard shift. So we worked basically 9 p.m. until 730 in the morning. And fast forward through the shift, the shift was very quiet. It was uneventful. And a little bit after 3 a.m., a call came out, a very frantic call that there was a woman and a boyfriend barricaded inside a condominium or an apartment, and there was a armed subject with a knife. And myself and all the officers that were on duty that that morning, we responded to the scene. I was actually first on the scene. And thankfully, another officer arrived just as I pulled up to the location. And we could literally hear blood curling screams coming from the distance. And we just started running towards those screams. Uh, we got to the condominium, it went dead silent. And we knew we had more officers that were coming. But myself and the first officer that arrived on scene, we had to make entry. We had to see what was going on with that couple and make sure that they were okay. And we went inside the condominium. Um, There's actually a huge window the size of a door that had been shattered inside into the condominium. And so we went down to this downstairs area, cleared it. We didn't see anybody um, other than broken glass. We didn't see any signs of a struggle or any kind of commotion. We ended up getting to the bottom of the stairs and we're announcing ourselves repeatedly. Our guns are out. You know, saying, police, please come out, show us your hands. And moments later, a subject came out just sweating profusely, eyes wide open, literally staring straight through us. And moments later, we realized that he was actually armed with a full-size butcher knife. And at that point, we started giving commands to drop the knife. You know, we don't want to shoot you. And he eventually all of a sudden came at us with this knife. And unfortunately, we had to shoot him and he ended up dying. And he was literally between us and the couple that was barricaded upstairs. And we didn't know if they were dying, bleeding out. And it turns out, thank God, that we got there and we did. But this armed subject had been stabbing through the bedroom door with a butcher knife. And this couple was actually physically barricading themselves. And the hinges of the door were actually coming off. And I know had we not gotten there when we did... That couple would not be alive today. I, I have no doubts.
0: And obviously, these sort of incidences can have a profound effect on first responders. In in you know whether it's yourself as a police officer at the time, or whether it's uh, the paramedics that come, you know, others that have to go out and, and 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 you know be be involved in these in these events. I know your focus has been. Uh, for some time now of, of, you know, trying to remove the stigma of mental health and, and trying to you know, improve uh, people's awareness around being able to support, uh, uh, gain support or reach out. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit more now about, about, you know, this book and where that's come from, how that's come about?
1: Absolutely. So the book, I have it here. It's called Relentless Courage. Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. And it's co-authored with Dr. Shauna Springer. And she is a clinical psychologist. Amazing, amazing woman. Um, I'm going to give you the backstory to this. I'll try to make it short. Um, But before COVID actually happened, she had reached out to me on LinkedIn. We didn't know each other. And she just wanted to introduce herself and talk about the work that she's doing with stellate ganglion block which is a medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And while we were talking, you know, she asked what what my story was and why I do what I do. And so I shared um, in much more detail my story of that incident and what followed after that in, in a series of just tragic and traumatic events. And during that discussion, Dr. Springer, she actually asked me, you know, she said, have you ever thought about writing a book about this? And I said, well, you know, it's funny that you asked me that because I've been asked that before. I said, but really, I think with, you know, the effects of post-traumatic stress, I don't think I have the concentration, the focus to actually get something like that done. I I just, I, you know, it would be nice, but I, I don't think it's a reality. And so we left the conversation at that. A couple months later, she hits me back up and she was like, look, she's, I've really been thinking about our discussion and what you told me. And she said, you know, your story, she's like, I've heard hundreds and hundreds of trauma stories from combat soldiers, from first responders, but your story, I think is just going to resonate with countless people and it could really save lives. And she said, you know, I want to make this happen. I want to write a book with you. And I knew at that very instant that she was the right person to make this happen. And We literally started the process when COVID happened and we didn't actually meet in person physically for over a year and a half into this project. Um, We started doing two hour Zoom meetings like every week where she recorded it and then she would write a chapter. We would talk about it, go back and forth. And this led to, you know, a series of chapters and a structure of the book. And the book is very distinct. It's very unique because every chapter is split into two distinct parts Uh, The first part is my story told in my voice, going all the way back to childhood until present day. And the second part of it is Doc Springer. She breaks everything down. She explains it in layman's terms so that anybody reading this book, whether you're a first responder, whether you know one or whether you're just somebody on the street, you're going to actually truly see the human side behind the badge. You're going to see the human behind the uniform. And it's, you know, this book is already saving lives and it's changing perceptions it's letting people see all first responders in a true light in the humans that we really are and you know showing that this trauma the toll of what we do it takes a toll on us you know it truly does and we have to address it we have to talk about it and most importantly we need to change the culture and make it okay to say look i need help you know or i just need to talk about this and i didn't do that because i was ashamed and i was embarrassed and that shame and embarrassment it led me to the point where i didn't want to be here anymore where i literally wanted to die and so you know this project it's it's not about me it's 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 much bigger than me and so far from the people that have read it i hear countless times that they say me too you know me too and it's just so many things in this book resonate not just with them but their loved ones their spouses their family members, their parents. Um, it's it's really groundbreaking. It's it's very innovative. I've never seen a book that has this type of structure where you're getting basically the best of both worlds. You know, you're getting the clinical side, but you're also getting the firsthand account, no holds barred, uncensored from somebody who's been there and done it.
0: Michael, what would you say that you have learned in this process? It sounds like in in some way, uh doing a deep dive and 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 explaining what your experience was, and then having it sort of unpacked or explained uh, by clinical psychologists. Now, uh, what was what 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 came out of it for you? What are the, what are the learnings that you've taken away from it?
1: Well, first, you know, I have to tell you that it, it took a toll writing this book. It it really did, but. The fact that I had Dr. Springer who would check in with me before and after every session. And we have a relationship where I could call her day or night and talk to her. And that really reinforced to me the power behind having that trusted person. You know, in my case, it's a culturally competent therapist, a clinician, but it could be a friend. It could be a family member, somebody that you know you can talk to that's not going to judge you. They're not going to look down upon you. And in this case, truly, truly understand it and 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 be there for you. So that, that was so powerful. You know, it, had I done this project on my own, I wouldn't have had that balance. I wouldn't have had that person that I could go check in with. And so the book just really, really reinforces, you know, that it's just talking about it and talking about it and sharing is healing. You know, for me, there's a lot of You know, there's some good things in the book, but there's a lot of bad and ugly in terms of poor decisions that I made or mistakes that I made. And I literally bare my soul and I put it all out there for the world to read. You know, and I know some people may judge me. You know, some people may look differently upon me, but to have that burden lifted off my shoulders that, hey, look, I can't control this anymore. You know, I'm not going to hide behind embarrassment and shame because I know now that when I asked for help, That was the strongest, most courageous thing to this day that I've ever done. It was nothing I did in the military. It was nothing I did on the streets. It was saying, look, I can't do this on my own. I've tried with very bad negative coping mechanisms that are making things much, much worse. And I need somebody who has the tools and resources to guide me on this path of recovery. And, you know, to be honest with you, I'm still in recovery today. I mean I'm night and day where I was and I'm living a whole new life but I've also learned that this takes maintenance. You know, you you're going to get triggered, things are going to happen. But the key is knowing how to deal with those triggers when they do happen and pressing through them. And, and that's the critical difference. You know, I didn't have those tools. I didn't have that kind of knowledge when I was at the depths of my struggling. And so this book, you know, it provides people Answers. It provides people resources. We actually have a whole section in the very back of the book with vetted resources from hotlines, text lines, to week long retreats with various nonprofits and organizations. So people, you know, when they're reading this book, they can simply flip to the back of the book, or years later, they can pull it off their bookshelf. If they're struggling, they can open the back, and there's a whole list of resources specifically for first responders. <laughs>
0: How important would you say it was to have, uh, someone like Dr. Springer there to, to have that trust in that, that nature of you know, a commitment of non judgmental ear, someone who can listen to your story that isn't going to judge or question, but rather just, just be available and, 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 and listen and, and Support. How important was that for you?
1: It was critical. I mean, absolutely critical. There's no way I could have recovered or been on this path without that type of relationship. And it it started before Dr. Springer. It started back in actually January of 2017 when I met with my very first culturally competent therapist who I ended up meeting with, you know, at first every week and eventually every other week for over two years and that was absolutely critical because i was able to share things with her that i've never shared with anybody and i knew that that was protected i knew it wasn't going anywhere and there weren't going to be any negative repercussions of anything i shared that was that was key i mean absolutely key you know if i'd gone to a psychologist or a clinician i saw a bunch of you know certificates and diplomas on their wall but we didn't have that trust relationship built None of that would have mattered because I wouldn't have opened up. I wouldn't have shared. And so trust is key to this whole process. And you have to build that trust in the very first meeting that you have with your clinician, your therapist, your psychologist. And in my case, back in 2017, she was a therapist, a licensed clinical social worker. She shared a very deep, dark personal story of her trauma and how she got out of it, how she recovered. I mean, literally... She was living proof that you can get better, that you can get through this. And and by her sharing that with me, we had automatic trust from that day on.
0: You mentioned the word culturally competent uh, therapist. Can you go into a little bit about what you mean by that?
1: So culturally competent therapists are therapists. And again, it could be a marriage family therapist, a licensed clinical social worker, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, but they are specifically trained in first responders because first responders are very unique. Um, The only other people that are close to first responders are veterans or active military people. And oftentimes culturally competent therapists, they see both military and first responders because we have a lot of similarities on our personalities, on why we've chosen these career fields, on the amount and level of trauma that we're exposed to. And so you need somebody who really understands the uniqueness of our professions. Because you know, I've heard a lot of horror stories of people that just walked into a random therapist that was referred by EAP, which is employee assistance program here in the United States. And they had no background or training whatsoever in being a first responder. And I heard time and time again, that when they went in there, all they saw was a shocked look on the therapist's face. And they ended up actually feeling worse, you know, after they left that office than before they walked in and it made things much worse. And in many cases, they made a decision that I'm never going to see a therapist again because not only did this not help, but it made it much worse because they don't get it. They don't understand it. And that goes back to when I was talking about earlier about the stigma, the shame You know, the feeling that I had when I was at the the deepest darks of my depression, anxiety and post-traumatic stress was I truly thought that nobody would get it, that nobody would understand it, that something was wrong with me. And it turns out that it's actually normal. And there's countless people out there, other first responders, culturally competent therapists who truly, truly get it. And it's critical, absolutely critical.
0: What would you say are the qualities of, of first responders? what what is it that brings you know them into those jobs, into those roles? you you mentioned that you know it's important to find someone who, who understands those people, so to say. what well, you know how, how would you describe them as being um, uh, I suppose, uh, different, you know for lack of a better word.
1: Well, you know, one thing I want to point out, and I was in denial of this myself. I mean, I literally did not want to acknowledge this. Um, I don't even know if when you and I first talked that I even addressed this. But I I discovered this through a program I went through called Save a Warrior, which is a program here in the United States for military and first responders, and it deals with complex post-traumatic stress, and it focuses on childhood trauma. And what I've learned through my own experience and through my volunteer work and my speaking is that... Many first responders and military members have some form, and again, this isn't all, I'm not saying all of them, but many of them have some form of childhood trauma. And that can be very, what's considered minor on the scale to very extreme or severe. As an example, what I would say would be on the minor end of the spectrum would be maybe an emotionally distant parent. You know, maybe a parent who is always at work, never home, maybe not very affectionate, Um, You know, moving up the scale, maybe you have a parent or a relative who's an alcoholic, a drug addict, or maybe there's physical abuse. Maybe there's sexual abuse. But the point of this is that at a very young, young age, we learn to basically overcome adversity. We learn to adapt. We learn to be resilient, you know, decisive. Um, And that those are qualities that actually make us very good at being a first responder those are qualities that we need but you know in my case i never dealt with my childhood trauma and here i am now i'm a first responder and now i'm being exposed to the trauma on the streets and so what i learned was is that you know i had this childhood trauma i never dealt with it never talked about it and then now i have this work related trauma on top of that compounding everything and eventually i worked on the work related trauma But I never worked on this and it wasn't until I addressed this that I was able to fully move through my recovery, you know, and and that's the thing. So first responders, you know, we are decision makers. We are in many cases decisive. Um, Many of us are perfectionists. Um, You know, we always want to do the best that we can. We don't like hearing negative feedback or negative comments. Um, We truly want to make a difference. We truly care. You know, that's the thing is that we as a self-protection tool, we pretend like we don't care and we try to distance ourselves. But in our hearts, we actually truly do care. That's why we signed up for this profession. And, you know, we're willing to literally put our lives on the line every single day for complete strangers. And I don't know of any other profession other than maybe military people who are willing to leave their house, say goodbye to their family and loved ones, knowing there's a good chance they may not come back home. And we accept that fully.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's a it's an incredible job to 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 do that where there's a self-sacrifice in in that where one's willing to put themselves in harm's way for others or for you know, a, a, a important value set that they believe in. It's quite quite remarkable. Can you can you speak a little bit to what you mean by uh, working on the trauma? There, there's there's going to be first responders out there listening to our conversation and 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 asking themselves what well, what does it mean to work on your trauma? Whether it's the childhood trauma, whether it's the current workplace uh, trauma, what what do you mean by working on? So that you know, people might hesitate of of engaging in in that how would you describe what that means
1: you know in the simplest terms i would say it's talking about it you know to be honest with you it's talking about specific things that have happened in your life and again it could be all the way back to childhood it can be on the job in my case it was a combination of both Uh, but it's talking about these different incidents that happen at different times you know acknowledging them talking about them with a trusted person, because, you know, a lot of times um, people actually carry these things with them and they haven't shared it with a single person. I mean, not even their own spouses or family members. You know, in my volunteer work, I've seen time and time again, you know, grown men and women in their forties, fifties that end up sharing something to do with a child abuse or sexual abuse as a child. And they literally have been carrying this around their whole life. They haven't shared it with a single soul and imagine the burden of something like that, you know, and imagine the after effects of that. Um, like in my case, you know, I had a a father biological father who was not really involved in my life and he became a drug addict and alcoholic. And I didn't realize the impact that had on me, that it had all my relationships and I had this fear of abandonment and I started self-sabotaging pretty much every single romantic relationship I had. But to tie that into the work trauma, I want to talk about administrative betrayal. And this is something that we haven't touched on here yet um, that I go into great depths in my book. But administrative betrayal is more trauma now. So you've got the childhood trauma, the work trauma, or the street trauma, I'll call it, and then the admin betrayal. And so in my case, there came a point where certain people in my agency turned their back on me. And imagine here I am. I never dealt with that childhood trauma with the fear of abandonment. And here I thought I found my new family, the blue family who's going to be there for me no matter what. And then in my, in my time of greatest need now they're turning their back on me. So that's where these impacts, they, they interrelate and they overlap, but you have to deal with them individually and separately. And, you know, for people that are listening it, it may be in different orders. Like in my case, I worked with the street trauma first. I, I got through that. You know, I'm, I'm here today where I can talk about these very traumatic incidents on the streets without getting emotional. And then I learned, you know what, I have to go back in time and I have to talk about the things that actually led me to this career field. And I need to address those now. And, and so really, you know, it sounds like it's complicated, but it's literally just talking about it, sharing it. But knowing that it's in a trusted, safe environment,
0: there's something as a as a clinician that I've certainly found, and speaking with my colleagues have, have found that uh, quite often with these situations where trauma becomes harder to overcome, or you know, to to let a an incident uh, you know decay and let it be, and kind of make room and space for it uh the, the the challenge often comes with that there being a secondary uh, trauma after the fact and so when you say to me you know an administrative betrayal uh, that often becomes what hurts most you know it, it's not necessarily just the the trauma that one might experience for example i'll i'll I'll, I'll move the the example a little bit further out to try and emphasize this if uh two people were in a loving relationship and uh, there was some infidelity for example and um you know that broke their trust and it was incredibly painful and hurtful the secondary uh upset and hurt and pain could come from loved ones that dismissed it and 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 kind of said well you know what did you expect? You know the the way that you behaved in the relationship, or whatever it might be that 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 almost kind of rubs salt into the wound. You know, most of us can, uh, you know, resilient enough to, to 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 have a number of wounds in our in our lives. Uh, the, the the challenge is when there's salt poured into those, it it hurts some more and 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 might you know become more difficult to to heal, and so when you talk about it you know from whether it be an administrative betrayal i've just used it in a in a relationship breakdown scenario uh it's important to talk about these things but as he said with someone who you can genuinely trust you know selecting a friend selecting a family member a professional uh, whether it's a psychologist social worker uh, and the like someone who can actually sit and listen and 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 validate and affirm one's feelings uh, without necessarily having to find a solution straight away. The solution will come, but it takes time to 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 downregulate, to be heard, to be comforted before we can kind of think our way through that. And, and I think it's an important point that uh you know you raise in 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 all this, just just sort of tying it together. And I think, you know, the secondary trauma in my eyes is, is is a big factor in these scenarios and and hence uh you know the importance of having you know therapy for example outside of an organization rather than inside because sometimes it can feel like they you know the the service that's being provided um may have an agenda to it whether it does or doesn't is a different story but it can sometimes feel that way That's not independent
1: I couldn't agree more. I mean, you, you said it perfectly. That was a a great concrete example. Um, you know, and you, you just said it yourself, but that administrative betrayal is a lot of times what actually pushes people over the edge and leads to suicide. It's not the traumatic event itself, but it's the after effect and the, the other trauma that happens. That's usually what pushes people over the edge
0: what are the barriers do you think that first responders face when trying to open up trying to you know seek support what is it that stops them from from reaching out stops them from engaging and and maybe i can even ask you what you know you've been doing your own work what what's gotten in the way for you what do you think others are are um, you know battling with and facing
1: You know, for me personally, and I go back to my military days and my law enforcement days, but, you know, I was in a leadership position. I was leading a patrol team and I truly felt that, you know, something was wrong with me and I felt weak and I felt ashamed and embarrassed that I didn't really feel like there was anybody who I could trust that I could go to and I could open up about this because I feared in my mind the ramifications. And for me, that would have been loss of confidence from the people that i was supervising you know my subordinates um, loss of you know leadership um, recognition or ability when it comes to my supervisors and the higher-ups in my agency that they would start looking at me and question whether or not i should even be a leader whether i should be a patrol sergeant and so for me it was a lot of career ramifications And it was the thoughts of that if, you know, I talk about this or I bring this out, this is really going to hurt my career. It's going to affect my chances of ever being promoted again. It's going to affect my chances of any kind of special assignments or other details that I want to do because people aren't going to trust me. They're not going to want to be around me. You know, they're going to think that something is wrong with me and they're going to kind of treat me like a pariah. And, you know, I'll be I'll be quite frank with you and honest, but even to this day, in my agency, and I'm not talking about the agency as a whole, but I'm talking about individuals. Um, there's a lot of people who have reached out to me years after I left and have started opening up and sharing their experiences. Um, but you know, when I was there, there's no way they would have ever shared that with me. And they kind of have been through the same things that I went through. But on the flip side of that, there's people to this day that if they see me in a room, they will avoid any and all contact with me. And they'll look at me as if I have some kind of contagious disease or virus that if they get near me or talk to me that this is going to spread, you know, and I I think also when it comes to administrations and higher ups in, in organizations, I think some of them have the same fear as well that, you know, you know, what if the other officers see this one officer and they're struggling, you know, we don't want everyone struggling. We don't want everyone coming out and saying they need help because we need people to do the job. We've got to staff the streets. You know, we can't have people off on injury. We can't have people off getting counseling and therapy. You know, we truly need people on the streets 24/7. And so it all comes down to that culture and that stigma. And although things are getting better, I mean they're getting better each day, there is so much more work that needs to be done. I mean, a lot more work needs to be done to break this stigma of saying that it's weak weakness, you know, to ask for help because that is truly strength and courage.
0: Absolutely. And, and it must be, it must be a very challenging job for the administrators as well about how do we, how do we support our people? You know, how, how do we understand their needs? You know, all, everyone's needs are quite unique uh, and, you know, there are, uh, uh you yeah. uh, lots of different scenarios and and, and factors you know, often people in those situations don't even know their own needs you know, that they uh, they haven't explored that very much and and been given uh, you know the, the the privilege to sit and and contemplate you know other times it's very hard for people to even engage in that process because they're so frightened, of doing that, you know, for the reasons that you just mentioned, as well in terms of fear of judgment or what might people think, will I be allowed to remain on the job? You know, will I be taken away from a particular task? There's still lots of you know challenge administratively and 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 for people about how do we do this as as very complex and large organizations? You know, particularly you know policing, military. know the emergency services uh, it's 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 quite complex and and i think you're right as well there there probably is a fear administratively about organizations saying well you know what does this signal to other people you know and and they might be also playing on the you know uh, uh, lowest common denominator where some you know individuals might take advantage of this and so they're, you know, potentially fearful of, you know, what's what's the cost going to be on 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 our service if you know there are certain people who are inclined that way to to take the path of least resistance and 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 um, take advantage of things that you know services should be provided for those who are in pain and, and, and suffering. Others might just kind of lean into that, and and so it's a very complex space, isn't it?
1: Yeah. It is, and you know, it's not. It's not easy. That's for sure. But, But what I will tell you is that everyone's paying attention. So if there is an officer who's struggling, or a firefighter, dispatcher, paramedic, whatever the case may be, and they ask for help and then are treated negatively, and if other people see that, surely no one else will ever ask for help. And that's the other part of this equation: is that you know people are watching. And if you're taking care of your people, people will know that, and they're going to trust the process. They're going to trust the organization. But if you have individuals who truly need help and you leave them out there on their own on an island and you're not helping them, you're not supporting them, that's going to cost lives because other people that truly should ask for help, they won't ask for help.
0: Does that potentially speak to our own uh, potential responsibilities? as individuals and you know as human beings to to look after our fellow you know, colleagues that if you see someone who you know is struggling, maybe to give them a you know a hand up so to speak, and and kind of check in that not necessarily waiting for the formal administrative processes to to kick in because they don't necessarily always meet one's needs, that we can, be actually those agents, those catalysts to say, you know, hey Rob, you know, how you going, mate? You, you know, you look like you're uh, struggling a bit. How have you been? And, and maybe if Rob says, no, no, I'm fine, maybe my my gut is to say, no, I'm going to inquire again in a week's time. I'm not going to just fob that off because you know. There, there, there is the need of some persistence around, you know, for 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 some people to open up and to be able to trust that. That's, uh, you know, we 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 try and not necessarily all be therapists, but maybe we can all be human, uh, and 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 from that perspective, try and touch our uh, our fellow, you know, humans in in a in a compassionate way.
1: And you know, you have to be vulnerable first if you expect somebody to open up to you and be vulnerable. That that's what it comes down to. And when I talk, I talk about different levels of an organization, different levels of leadership and all those people at all those levels, they need to lead by being vulnerable themselves and being honest and sharing, you know, Hey, there was a time, you know, five years ago where my marriage was struggling. And, you know, I I went through this very dark period after this horrible incident, but here's what I did to get better. You know, but they're being honest about it and sharing. But so many of us want this perfect image that you know we're untarnished, that we're, you know, our badge is shiny and we're we're perfect, we don't make mistakes, nothing bothers us. But that's the detriment. That's that's the problem right there. And the real leaders will be vulnerable and open themselves, like I said. And and what I've also learned is that some of the people that come off as not caring, who are angry and bitter. And, and people say like, you know, what is wrong with this person? They, they just don't care. And I say to them that, you know what, they're dealing with their own struggles and they're dealing with their own trauma that they haven't addressed. And, and that's where I was when I was a sergeant. I actually became unapproachable and I became an asshole because I lost sight of my people and their problems. And I lost sight of empathy and sympathy because in my mind, it was like, that's not a problem. Like I have a problem. That's not a problem. And the reality of it was that I wasn't being open. I wasn't being vulnerable. But had I been, then people would have had that trust to come to me when they had issues. But they didn't. So nobody would come to me. And and like you said, you know, we ask all the time, hey, how are you doing? And we don't want to dig past that. We want to hear I'm doing great. I'm doing okay. you know, I'm doing good. That's all we want to hear. And we want to keep on walking. But what I think is most interesting about that, especially... I mean, all first responders, but especially law enforcement is that, you know, we're trained interrogators, like we're trained lie detectors. Like we question people all the time on calls and at scenes. We call people on their BS and we say, look, I don't believe that. Like there's something else here. You're not telling me the truth. We do that with suspects. But why don't we do that in a caring way with our own people? That's what people need to ask themselves.
0: Mm. It's almost like it becomes more scary it becomes more frightening you know will will they judge me for how I'm caring or or, or questioning them you know, are they are they going to reject me for this you know this it's almost there's a bit of interesting play here with words where you mentioned you know for someone to trust us we need to be vulnerable you know and and similarly in our conversation we've also said we need to be courageous. Uh, Almost like you know, it we've got to be courageous to be vulnerable, or we've got to be, you know, honorable to be courageous. In in some sense, at least in this conversation, there's somewhat the same thing. It's just that, you know, as 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 you know, strong men beating our chests. I don't want to be vulnerable. Um, but uh in actual fact, the hardest thing to do is to be courageous and 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 begin to talk about, you know, uh, our our uh uh You know our human nature and our our shortcomings or our challenges that we do actually have feelings but you know you know particularly as men well maybe i can have feelings but i can also still go out and 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 perform my role you know Uh, and by suppressing that you know maybe we do become assholes sometimes you know i i can certainly put my hand up for that one too exactly no
1: absolutely
0: so what what, uh, what 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 do you hope that this uh, uh, book uh, is is able to to do for others who are you know willing to you know, invest the time and the energy you know m- most of us you know struggle with going out and, and, and whether it's seeking help, talking about this, you know picking up a book, listening to a podcast. what are you hoping comes out of out of your your work and, and Dr. Springer's work?
1: Uh, first and foremost, I hope people see that they're not alone. That there's nothing wrong with them. That the f- feelings that they're having is normal. It's a normal reaction to what they've been exposed to and what they've experienced in their lives. And more importantly, that if you do address that, that you can get better. You can live a very healthy life, and you can also have a very long, successful career. Um, you know, I think that. If you address these things as they're happening, as opposed to waiting, like I did, I waited over four years with everything bottling up and getting worse. Um, Had I dealt with these things as they happened, I think I would be working still today. I truly do. And post-traumatic stress is definitely not a career ender. Um, It's something that we're going to be exposed to these things, but if we normalize our response about it and how we talk about it, and it doesn't have to be a big event, we can just you know, take a moment and, and have a discussion about, yeah, that call, you know, we just went to, it was really rough. And, um, you know, I, I, couldn't sleep last night. I kept having images of this, this poor girl in the crosswalk. And, um, I, I just, you know, I need to get that off my chest and then we move on, you know, but in my case, if you wait too long, it takes that much longer to recover and to get better. And, and I waited too long to the point where I couldn't do the job anymore and, and I missed the job. And I truly, Wish I was still doing it because that's what I aspired to do my entire life. It was my calling. And so I think if people read this book, everyone should read it. I mean, whether you're thinking about being a first responder, you know, maybe it's your first day of the academy. Maybe you're a 20-year veteran, or maybe you're just a spouse, a child, a family member, brother, sister of one. It's going to give you not only a whole new insight and understanding of your loved ones, of your relatives but it's going to give you some tools on how to open up those discussions and how to be there for them when you need them most. Um, Because, you know, that was another mistake I made that we didn't talk about, but I truly thought when I started my career that by, I, I told myself I would never bring the job home. I would never talk about it. And by doing that, I'm going to protect my family. Well, what happened in my case was I lost my marriage because when it came to that point, when I really needed to talk about it, it was too late. Things were too far gone. And so, you know, it's never too late to start these conversations. If someone's listening to this today, start the conversation today. You know, be honest. Let your loved ones and family members know that it's not them that you're annoyed at or pissed off at. It's something that happened today at work. And you don't have to go into, you know, big details, but you can just say, look, I went to a really traumatic child call to this, you know, today I just need like some time to decompress and then we can re-engage. I just, I need to get myself together. You know, that's what we need to normalize is make that part of our lives routine. And like I said, if you do that, if you use these tools, you will have, you know, a good career, but more importantly, you'll have a great life. And that's really what's most important is living life to the fullest.
0: What would you say to someone who is finding it difficult to take that on board? You know, as as you're talking about it, you know, my Mind is is shooting off all the reasons why my clients would say, you know, I can't do that. I'm I'm going to be discarded from a job, or someone's not going to respect me. Um, I'm going to, you know, look weak in front of my spouse. Uh, if I talk to someone, they're not going to hear me. They're not going to listen. I've already tried. You know, there's there's all these narratives that are built in that obviously as a clinician I hear on a, on a regular basis, what would you say to someone who, you know, their, their mind is firing off all the reasons why, why they shouldn't or or they can't, or that people won't understand. What, what would your advice or, or response be to that?
1: It's a little biased, but I would say, you know, this book right here, Relentless Courage, you can read this in private. You can read it at home. You can read it in your ambulance or patrol car on the downtime. You can start processing this yourself and start learning things about this without initiating that conversation, without opening up to others. But I think this book is going to let you realize that, like I said in the beginning, that this is normal, that you're normal, that your feelings that you're having, it's not unique. And there's so many other of your brothers and sisters out there who are feeling exactly the same way. And there's endless resources that can help you. Um, but, you know, I, I've had people personally that said, "You look, you know, I don't I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to deal with this. And I know a couple of you personally who they read this. And then they said to their their spouse, their wife, their husband said, I want you to read this as well. And let's have a talk when you're done. And that's happened where spouses, partners, and first responders have both read this book independently and they've come together and they've had a conversation. And one person in particular said it saved his marriage. I mean, imagine that by reading this book, it saved his marriage. And it wasn't the book that saved his marriage. It was the fact that he opened up and communicated with his wife and shared from his heart truly how he felt and truly what he was going through. That's what saved his marriage.
0: What would be the greatest challenge that you anticipate that stops someone from seeking the support that they know? There's a lot of people who know they need help. Before they get into this clinical room here at, 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 at my practice or picking up your book, most of us get it right most of us go my life is beginning to fall apart now whether it's late in the game or whether it's early in the game is this hard to tell because we all kind of have that insight at, at, at different times but most of us get it you know whether we're being a little bit more irritable with our spouses or we're beginning to avoid i don't know work functions or um, Where we're, we're using alcohol a little bit, you know, more than we did previously. What, what's the one thing that that you think is 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 the barrier that um, uh, is getting in the way? You know, well, obviously we can't speak to everyone's truth, but what what do you think is the primary thing?
1: I think it's fear of judgment. I think it's, it's being ashamed. I think it's, you know, having people look down upon you and, you know, especially as first responders, we, we have to be these superheroes that go out every single day that go into the most dangerous volatile situations. And we don't show any fear. We're always taking control and we're used to being in control. Um, and it's, it, it's very scary to say, look, you know, I'm not in control you know, that I, I I can't do this on my own, that I need your help. I think that's the biggest hurdle is just to acknowledge that because I know part of this is a self-defense mechanism because, you know, when you're at work and you're operational and you're on the job, you have to be that way. You have to have that feeling that, that you're going to go into the situation and you are going to take charge. You are going to take control. So I don't want to take away from that. But when you're away from the job, And you're with your family you don't have to be in control you know if anything you need to let go of some of that control and realize that you're not at work that you need to trust those that care most about you because the job the organization is not your true family your loved ones at home if you have them that is your family you know whether it's your spouse your partner your children it can be a parent a sibling Those are the people that have your back. Maybe it's a good friend, you know, but you have to have those people that you can go to, that you can turn to. And and I think what's really important is establishing the stuff early on, you know, don't wait for the big one, because if the big one happens and you haven't worked on this, if you haven't established these trusted relationships, it may not be enough. You know, you need to start today because the Mm. big one can happen anytime. And the big one is it's different for all of us. All these different calls and events affect each of us differently. I mean, four of us could be involved in the same incident and we could all have different outcomes on how that affected us.
0: Sounds like our, our muscle that we use to maintain, you know, control and to have, you know, courage and to be decisive and you know get the job done is very well established and so we overuse it and we don't have very much at all muscle memory about being open and talking about some of our you know internal experiences and feelings and 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 because of that it's very hard to go out and say here's the big event and and what you're saying is, encouraging people to, to, to start today to open up, you know, to be courageous enough to open up you know, uh, in the smallest of ways to start beginning to use that muscle. That if you, if you can use it for, you know, a, a five pound weight, you know, or, you know, um, I should be saying, you know, uh, a two and a half kilo weight, um, uh, then you can potentially go out and do that, you know, with, uh, 5 kilo or 10 kilo and, and and so on and 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 you know hopefully then you've moved enough weight um that you don't actually have to do it with the big one so to speak that the, all the work has been done because you're decompressing over time you're understanding yourself you're self reflecting you're developing a capacity to be psychologically flexible uh by virtue of you know conversing with with people that you trust and you've got their support and it makes us more, more robust as a, as a community rather than as an individual, you know, bobbing in the water all by themselves.
1: Definitely. You said it, you said it perfectly. I mean, very eloquent. I could illustrate it. I could see it and you're exactly right. Exactly right. And even, you know, when it comes to those culturally competent therapists, you know, get to know them early on you know, form those relationships. Um, You know, obviously you need the trust at home, but you also need sometimes something outside of that. And to establish trust with the clinician after the big ones happened, that's going to be a lot more difficult than if you start that relationship early on. And, you know, that is a hurdle because um, I, you asked this earlier, but I think one of the issue is, is I keep hearing there's a shortage of culturally competent therapists and clinicians And so we really need more clinicians and therapists to get educated, to start learning more about first responders and military members, Um, because I think as more and more people ask for help, we're going to definitely need a lot more resources out there.
0: Michael, what's next for for you? What's the next chapter uh, uh, that you see on the horizon for you?
1: You know, I get asked that a lot and um, I am retired. Um, I have a beautiful 12-year-old daughter who I have half the time. And so when I have her, I'm a full-time dad. And that is my focus. Um, I'm also focused on living life to the fullest. I truly try to enjoy every single day. I try to minimize as much stress as I can. And I'm very fortunate that I'm able to do that. But you know, my plan is to speak occasionally across the United States. And I'm, I'm, I am though, hoping for Australia. Um, That is one of my dreams. Um, Also the UK and Canada. So I'm hoping that at some point I can, I can speak in a different country and and talk about this stuff. Um, That would be, I think on the horizon. And one of my biggest goals is to accomplish that, you know, but in the meantime, it's to, to truly live life and enjoy life. Because as we know, life is short.
0: I think one of the most powerful models of of you know how how we would like others to to seek support and and to manage their lives is you know is always about how we model it. Uh, I think people observe around us a lot more than uh, what what they get from our words, so to speak. And obviously, it's both, but uh, it really resonates when you can see someone who, who's living you know uh, well meaning that they've reduced a lot of the suffering uh, the unnecessary suffering that that's there and so they only need to contend you know with the pain that life brings that's unavoidable uh, but at least the avoidable stuff you know the 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 mental wrestling and 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 uh, challenges that we have they've they've dropped you know much of that and and, and therefore is there's less suffering and and we can tend to see that for for those who you know have done some work on themselves but, you know talk through their difficulties they've got insight they can self-reflect they've got psychological flexibility they've got a lot of perspective taking uh, and they're not afraid to continue doing that into uh, uh you know into old age you know we're both uh Starting to gray up or you know, um uh show, show I'd like to say show our wisdom. Um I'm not sure there's too much there, but uh, it's you know it's a good start.
1: Lots of wisdom here. Lots <laughs> of wisdom.
0: <laughs> well, Michael, a big big, big thank you for for coming onto the show and once again highlighting you know the 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 great importance about you know seeking support finding someone trusted in one's life and and being active in one's recovery to to yeah you know, hopefully have some barriers uh, uh you know away from uh you know, poor mental health and and obviously toward living a richer and more vibrant life and and you know hopefully avoiding suicide Particularly for many first responders, so you know, thank you. And uh, let me just ask you: Where can people find find your book if they'd like to go pick up a copy?
1: So, Relentless Courage. It's only on Amazon, so it's available in Kindle or paperback or hardcover. Um, it's the only place you can get it for now. Um, and if people want to reach out to me, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I've got a couple Facebook and Instagram pages. The first one is Sergeant Michael Sugru. And the second one is First Responders First. And so I have both of those on Facebook and Instagram, but feel free to contact me, send me a message. I check those every single day.
0: Michael, thank you. Big, big appreciation for for the work that you're doing and I wish you all the best.
1: Thank you very much. Take care.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review subscribe share it via social media and tell others about it start a conversation it's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.